0: May God bless the reading of His holy, inerrant Word, and let His church say, Amen. Amen. wonder this morning if you, like me, in desperation to God, have ever asked God to give you a sign. In college, I was praying about a matter. Don't even remember what it was, but was facing a decision. And I remember being bothered about this decision I needed to make. And I was praying and asking the Lord's guidance and direction in my life. And I was fearful that if I made the wrong decision, I would, I would miss God's will for my life and my whole life would fall into chaos. And I, I didn't know which way to go. And so I, I asked the Lord to do for me like He did for Moses and give me a sign. And, 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 and Lord, if you would just let me put my hand in, in my shirt and pull it out and let it be leprous like Moses hand. And let me put my hand back in my shirt and pull it out. and Let it be clear again. Just give me a sign of, of what you want me to do, Lord. And so there I was praying and I, Put my hand in my shirt and pulled it out. You know what happened? Nothing. Maybe that didn't work. Let me try again. Put it in my shirt and pulled it out. Nothing. Wonder if you've ever been there when you've been so desperate in prayer. You ask God for a sign. Signs, dear Christian, are not the Savior. We read about signs in the Bible, and we think that if we had more miraculous signs in our life, that our lives would be improved as Christians. We think that it would make our decisions easier. We think that our church would grow exponentially if there were more signs. We think that signs would erase our doubts, and we think that signs would confront our unbelieving friends with evidence that they could no longer refute. Signs are not the Savior, though. Listen to what Moses told the Israelites at the covenant renewal ceremony in Moab. This is in Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4. Listen to this. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see. Or ears to hear Isn't that interesting you think about all the signs and wonders there the exodus the plagues poured out upon the Egyptians the leadership of Moses standing at the Red Sea and the miraculous parting of the of the waters there the the signs that the Lord did for the Israelites in the wilderness the The water that flowed from the rock, the the bread from heaven, the manna on the ground, the pillar of fire and cloud at the tent of meeting. All these great signs and wonders that the Lord has done. And Moses concludes the end of Deuteronomy that those signs didn't really help the Israelites very much. God had not given them eyes to see, he had not given them ears to hear, he had not given them hearts to understand. Don't kid yourself that you if you had more miraculous signs in your life that your faith would be improved. Signs are not the savior. What's wrong with basing our faith on signs? I want us to consider that question as we look at this passage of Scripture. What's wrong with basing our faith on signs? Signs, I want you to see here, don't change hardened hearts. Signs don't change hardened hearts. John explains here at the end of Jesus' public ministry, and we're studying the Gospel of John, and we're Here in John chapter 12, this is the end of Jesus' public ministry, and John is summarizing for his readers the ministry of Jesus up to this point. Jesus has done many signs, many great and wonderful signs for the Jews there. In fact, John records six of those signs... In the life of Jesus, in the Gospel of John so far, we think about them uh, turning the water into wine, healing the official son, healing the man uh, lame at the pool, healing the man born blind, the feeding of the 5,000, and of course the last and greatest sign at this point is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John records these six signs in his Gospel and What does he conclude about these great signs? Look with me at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them. What signs? These six signs. They still did not believe in him. You see, without faith, the Jews saw the signs but missed the Savior. That was their problem. They witnessed the signs, they saw the signs, but they missed the one the signs pointed to. Signs aren't the Savior. Signs cannot change hardened hearts. So what are we to make of this? John provides the interpretive lens here with two quotes from the book of Isaiah. Look with me first at verse 38. John explains that their rejection of Jesus is a fulfillment of, of Isaiah's prophecy. He quotes Isaiah 53, 1, where he says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is in uh, the portion of Isaiah that's known as the suffering servant, where the ministry of the Messiah is discussed. And what is described there in Isaiah 53 is that the suffering servant comes and that he declares God's message. You see that there in verse 58. That they hear God's message. And the suffering servant demonstrates signs of the Lord. That's the arm of the Lord that is revealed there. And despite having done this, Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says that it didn't benefit them. The preaching of the gospel from the suffering servant and the miraculous signs that he did did not benefit the Jews to whom this was revealed. And so what John is saying is that the Jewish rejection of Jesus as Messiah is fulfilling what Isaiah the prophet foretold would happen when the suffering servant came. Therefore, look at verse 39, we see here that they were unable to believe. You see that in verse 39? Hope that challenges our theology a little bit here, doesn't it? What do you mean they were not able to believe? Well, it's right there in the text. You, you can't miss it, right? They are unable to believe the signs and teaching and preaching of Jesus. Why? Why? Well, God hadn't opened their hearts to believe and receive it. You say, well, wait a minute, what on earth are you talking about? Well, look again at this message from Isaiah. This is from chapter 6, Isaiah 6. He's quoting verse 10. He has blinded their eyes. So they saw the signs, but they didn't see the signs. He has hardened their hearts. They heard the message, but their hearts didn't receive it. Why? Well, why did God do that? Because if they saw with their eyes and understood with their hearts, they would turn and repent, and God would heal them. You say, wait a minute. What are you saying here? Think about this passage, Isaiah 6, in context. What is the uh, chapter of Isaiah 6? What's well, that marvelous passage in which God revealed Himself to the prophet Isaiah. You know it. In the in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. I'm, I'm summarizing here, but the train of His robe filled the temple, Isaiah said in his vision. Above and surrounding the Lord were seraphim with six wings, with Two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they covered their eyes, and with two wings they flied, and they cried out in worship to the Lord. What did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people who are unclean. And so the Lord declares forth, he asks the question, who will go and speak to these people, the Jews? And Isaiah says what? Hear my Lord, send me. And what does the Lord tell Isaiah? Well, the Lord tells Isaiah, this is every preacher's dream, by the way, I'm saying that sarcastically. The Lord tells Isaiah, you're going to be a failure. You are going to preach and people are going to reject your message. Their eyes are going to be blind. Their hearts are going to be closed off. They will not be able to believe what you declare to them. Their hearts are hard. And I am not going to give them the gift of faith. And so you, Isaiah, are going to go and you are going to declare this message to God's people and their hardened hearts. You're going to go do this as an act of God's judgment. They're going to reject the message from God through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah and this will be God's judgment upon them for their unbelief, and for their sin. And so what John is explaining here is that what was true of Isaiah is true of Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the prophet who has come. He has declared God's message. He has done the signs that God has given him to do. And yet, the rejection of Jesus' ministry is an act of God's judgment upon the Jews. An extraordinary explanation of this in verse 41. The Apostle John even says that Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. Now, wait a minute. What are you talking about here, Pastor? Some commentators think that what Isaiah saw here was the suffering servant to come. And so what he's declaring in this passage is he is foretelling the coming of the Messiah, this Messiah identified as the suffering servant. He sees his glory to come. He sees his ministry to come. And God using the suffering servant as an act of judgment on God's people and that despite him appearing to be a failure, he is in fact glorious. One understanding of verse 41. There's another understanding of verse 41 that what he sees here, that this is a reference, and I tend to hold this position, the glory that's described here is Isaiah 6. That what Isaiah saw was In that vision, the glory of the Lord and the glory of the Lord that was revealed to him was the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, revealing God's splendor and glory to the prophet Isaiah in that vision. So what Isaiah is declaring, he is doing so because of the glory that he saw of the pre-incarnate Christ who was to come. You say, well, how do those two options affect the interpretation of this passage? they don't. That's just extra. I just thought I'd just give that to you. It's a chew on. You can think about that. Lest we think here that the Jews are not culpable in this rejection and unbelief, look at verses 42 and 43. Here we see the reason that their hearts are hardened. God has hardened their hearts, and they've hardened their hearts. Many of the Jewish authorities, verse 42 says, "Look at what, what did they do? Look at verse 42. They actually believed in Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. But what did they do with that faith? Well, they feared the Pharisees, and so they did not confess their faith in Jesus. What John is explaining here is a weak, shallow, superficial faith. That's what he's saying. This is not saving faith. This is not the kind of faith that is born out of a heart that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. These are those who think they can be secret disciples of God. And so they fear the Pharisees. They fear that if they confess their faith in Jesus, that the Pharisees will Put them out of the synagogue, and they would lose their positions of authority and leadership in Jerusalem. They love the glory. Notice in verse 43 why they do this? They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How would you know if your heart was growing hard toward the Lord? What would be the signs of a hardened heart? Thought about that this week. Thought about a Bible reading up through this year. If you're on Bible reading plan, you're probably at the end of 2 Kings, and you've read essentially now the full story of the Israelites from Exodus to exile at this point. Thought about the preaching of Travis through the book of Jeremiah, and I thought about what we've learned so far in the Gospel of John. And here's my list that I've come up with. Signs that a heart is growing hardened toward the Lord. You can see all these in the life of the Jews. See if any of these are true of yourself. Craving the approval of people more than the approval of God. We see that here in this passage, don't we? They love the glory of man more than the glory of God fearing the shame for being publicly associated with Jesus think about our students here teenagers and and children who are members of this church are you ashamed to be called a Christian are you do you fear the shame that would come upon you from your peers if they knew that you were in church this Sunday and that you were a Christian Verbally assenting to God's law, but refusing to follow God's law personally. Refusing obedience until a sign is provided to you. Being offended by God's law instead of being broken hearted for violating it. Seeking to obtain God's approval by obedience rather than by the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. Being apathetic about worship rather than participating in worship. Attempting to practice idolatry and the worship of God. Trying to do both. Refusing to be corrected by those God sends into your life. Reading signs into the providence of God and drawing a predetermined conclusion from them in order to justify yourself and your sinful actions. Never being satisfied with the revelation God has always already provided in His Word. You might be thinking to yourself, well listen, if my heart is hard, it's not my fault. I can't help it. I mean, doesn't it say in this passage, pastor, that God had blinded their eyes and God had hardened their hearts? I mean, isn't that what this passage is teaching? So, if my heart is hardened toward the Lord, well, it's not really my fault. I can't help it. I'm, I'm off the hook, you might think. D.A. Carson gives us four considerations before we're quick to jump to that conclusion. Carson says that, number one, God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. If God withholds His grace from a sinner's heart, that does not let the sinner off the hook for their sin and rejection of God. Secondly, God is never capricious against morally neutral or pure beings. But those that He decrees judgment upon are those who are guilty of sin and willfully rejecting God. Third, God's sovereignty in these matters should fill all of our hearts with hope. You say, well, why? Because if he is sovereign over hearts that are hardened, he's also sovereign over hearts that can be pliable and molded to receive the gospel. Isn't that what we pray for when we pray for someone's conversion? We're praying that God would act sovereignly. There is no Arminian who prays for the conversion of a sinner's heart. Every prayer for conversion is a Calvinistic prayer. You say, what do you mean? you are asking God to act sovereignly over that heart to change their will to make them willing and able to receive the Gospel. That's a Calvinist prayer, dear Christian. Lastly, the hardening of the Jews' hearts sets the stage for the Messiah to come and redeem humanity. So, just before you think, before you're quick to jump to the conclusion, well, How could God do this? Remember that this is all in the mysterious providence of God under His sovereignty. And He is doing a million things behind the scenes, setting up for the Messiah to come when all we see is the Jews' rejection. Little did they know their rejection of Jesus that would send Him to the cross would be the very means that would bring salvation to whoever receives the gospel. You see, signs are not the Savior. We can never base our faith off of signs. Why? Signs don't change hardened hearts. Only God can do that. Now we're left with a question here to consider then that if we're not to base our faith off signs, then Why do we have these signs in Scripture? I mean, didn't you just finish telling us that Jesus did these signs? Don't we have signs? What purpose do they serve? Well, signs point us to the Savior. That's what they do. Signs are never about the signs themselves. Signs in Scripture always point to the Savior. You see, with faith, whoever sees the signs will rightly perceive the Savior. Jesus here is summarizing in verses 44 through 50, He is summarizing essentially all of His teaching up to this point in the Gospel of John. He is he's explaining it. In fact, for those of you who really get into things like chiasms, Dave Dumpy, when he Be at Sunday school. You miss a lot if you're not at Sunday school. Those who like the chiasms, you get excited about it. I think what we have here with the reference, Jesus calling himself the light who's come into the world, is an inclusio. I know. You get really excited about that, right? So we learned about chiasms in Sunday school, and now we're learning about inclusios. You say, what is that? Essentially, these are bookends. In John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the light who's come into the world. That begins His ministry. His ministry is the light. And here at the end of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus is explaining that He's the light who's come into the world. But Jesus is done with signs in the Gospel of John. This word sign will not appear in the Gospel of John until chapter 20, I believe it is in the conclusion of the Gospel of John. Jesus is no more going to do signs. The focus is going to be on Jesus and the work of Jesus and Him going to the cross. The signs have reached their fulfillment. They've served their purpose. They have pointed to the Savior. And so here, Jesus, knowing the rejection of the Jews, does not try to bargain with them. He does not come up to a meeting with the Jews and the Pharisees and say, okay, hey, listen, how many more signs is it going to take for me to do in order for you to have faith in me? What do you need? Another sign? Two more signs? Three more signs? What, What is it that you need? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't try to bargain. He doesn't even explain the signs that He does. Rather, in verses 44 through 50, He calls for faith. That's what He's doing. The signs have already been done and now He is calling people to believe in Him. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these verses because Jesus is just recapitulating everything that He's already said throughout the Gospel of John to this point. But let me just summarize a few points. Number one, now that the Gentiles have come to seek Jesus which has triggered the hour for the cross to come, Jesus is the Messiah for whoever believes. You see that there in verse 44? Whoever believes in Me. Who's the whoever? The whoever is now not just the Jews, but it is Jews and Gentiles both. Anyone can get in on the covenant of grace. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever believes... He's the Messiah for whoever. Look at verse 46. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes. Again, this message is for the world, not just for Israel. Second, Jesus summarizes His ministry indicating that He Himself is the perfect representative of God the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. The words that He speaks, He speaks from the Father. If you see Him, He is the light of the world. Whoever puts their faith in Jesus is putting their faith in God the Father. And the message that Jesus has spoken up to this point did not come of His own accord. He spoke the commandments that the Father has given Him. Third. Belief in Jesus leads to salvation. You see that here. Whoever puts their faith in the light, whoever receives the light, receives deliverance from darkness, Jesus is saying. His commandments are what? Verse 50. Eternal life for those who receive them. And lastly, rejecting Jesus leads to judgment. In fact, what Jesus says here is that He didn't come into the world for judgment, He came into the world for salvation. But those who reject the message of the Gospel, His life and ministry and words and signs, are not for those persons evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, but rather on the day of judgment, they are evidence that they rejected the Messiah. That Jesus had done all these things that they were witnesses to them, And it did not do them any good. Their hearts were hard toward the Lord. heard a quote from a professor in seminary. He said, God gives us all the knowledge we need to be obedient. Not all the knowledge we desire to be omniscient. What we want to be is omniscient. We want God to reveal everything to us. God doesn't reveal everything to us, does He? He gives us all the information we need to be obedient. The Apostle John would agree with that statement. He would rephrase it to something like this. Jesus has given us all the signs we need for an informed faith. Not all the signs we crave so that faith is no longer necessary. If Jesus gave the crowds what they wanted, He'd feed the 5,000 for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They're more interested in the bread that comes from Jesus miraculously than Jesus as the bread of life. The crowds are more interested in glancing a peek at a dead man that Jesus raised to life than learning about how Jesus raises dead hearts to life. And how Jesus Himself will raise to life. Signs aren't the Savior. They point us to the Savior. And the signs that Jesus has provided are sufficient for us as Christians to have an informed faith. But they're not all the signs that we crave which would make faith unnecessary. Think about all the signs that God has given us. Think about what God has blessed us with as Christians today. He's revealed Himself in nature through general revelation. He's revealed Himself in His mighty acts of salvation in human history through special revelation. Through the ministry of the prophets and the apostles. The prophets pointed to the coming of the Messiah and the apostles explained the coming of the Messiah. God has given us His infallible Word, which is the most historically reliable book in all of human history. He's given us the presence of the Spirit as Christians who testifies in our hearts regarding the spirit of adoption. He's given us the church with her ordinances And sacraments, the preaching of the word, the corporate congregational worship, fellowship, and the pastoral care of church officers. He's given us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are signs and seals of the covenant of grace, drawing our attention to Jesus. He's given us all that we need for an informed faith in Jesus there was news recently it was all over social media and blogs about a church in Tulsa big mega church in Tulsa and their what they called Easter service and transformation church instead of having an Easter service where the pastor preached a resurrection message they decided to forego the preaching of the gospel and have an Easter play. And the pastor said that they, they wanted something that was really edgy, that would really capture people's attention. And he said, we, were, we are willing to do anything in this Easter play short of sin. We want to go all the way up to the line, up to the line of sin and stop short. Well, they burst that line and went way beyond that. There was pyrotechnics in church that day for the scenes in hell. There were actors who dressed as demons. There were cover songs of popular hip-hop music. There was suggestive dancing in this Easter play. And the pastor didn't preach a sermon either. And as shocked as we are by something like that, and we we think, how on earth could they do something like that? I think we also need to be asking the question, why people crave that? The church was full. The multitudes flocked to Transformation Church, those couple of days of that Easter play, what makes that so appealing to people? Well, it's the same doubt that resides in our hearts when we think that maybe what God has provided to us is insufficient. Maybe our worship in church is old and antiquated and, you know, just water and baptism and and the Lord's Supper, I mean, the ordinary means of grace are so plain, and ordinary. Where's the pizzazz? Where's the excitement? Jazz it up a little bit. Why don't you? Signs have never been able to convert a hardened heart. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And what you do as a church to draw a crowd will be the same thing they require of you to keep a crowd. William Still, in his book on shepherding, an old, grouchy, Scottish Presbyterian, says, you can't care for sheep while you're entertaining goats. Let them entertain the goats out in Goatland. Our job as the church is to care for the sheep. And we shouldn't abdicate what the Lord has provided to us in the preaching of the Word and the sacraments. We should not abandon the faithful administration of what God has given to us to try to make the message more appealing. When we do so, we do so in our pride. And we think that our church would be better than Jesus. Signs are not the Savior, and we should be content with what God has provided, and trust that He is sovereign in changing hearts. What's wrong with basing our faith on signs? Well, signs don't change hardened hearts. They're not the Savior. Instead, they point us to the Savior. You don't need to ask God for more signs, dear Christian. You need to pray and ask God to give you faith in what He's already provided. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we confess to You that our hearts are sinful and we lack faith and trust in the means that You have given to us. We pray that You would forgive us for that. And we ask that You would give us hearts that are content with the revelation and the signs that You have already provided. Make our faith strong. Make us faithful. And help us never to compromise Your Word. Help us not to Compromise it to make it more appealing and palatable to the world. Enable us to remain faithful to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.